This is a story of sorts, the podcast mostly about bookish stuff, and I am your host, Karina Pereira. Hello everyone, on this episode I talk with Jabar Yassim about his writing career, his experience as a teacher, and about his new novel, Yonder. Have a listen. Jabari, welcome to a Story of Sorts. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. Tell us about yourself. Uh, let's see. I'm originally from St. Louis, Missouri, uh, mid midwestern part of the United States. And I was a journalist for many, many years, more than two decades uh, before becoming a professor. So I did a lot of, of newspaper work before shifting focus to books and teaching. And Yonder is your upcoming novel. And actually, as at the time that we are recording this, your novel will be out tomorrow, which is the 11th of January. Can you reveal a bit about the plot to us? Oh, sure. I mean, it, it takes place uh, in the American South in the, the mid-1850s. So this is before emancipation, and most Black people uh, were enslaved during this period. And you know, part of enslavement was you couldn't make any decisions about your personal life, um, You know, to say the least, but yeah. that included that included who you might take as a partner, whom you might fall in love with, whom you might have children children with. Um, and so, in in my book, there are two couples uh, that fall in love, and you know they're they're forced to make you know to make a choice: do we do we continue to endure under these conditions uh, with with uncertainty surrounding our relationships, or do we take a chance on something else? Um, and so, the story unfolds from there. And do you remember when the idea for Yonder started to take shape, how you decided to write that particular book? Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, actually, the first lines came to me uh, way back in uh, 2008. Um, wow. I, was walking, I was walking down the street in uh, Champaign, Illinois. Um, I used to teach at the University of Illinois. And uh, the, the, first, the first few lines uh, that are actually in the book, uh, I didn't change them at all. Uh, they came to me when I was walking down the street. And so I had a little notebook in my pocket um, that I kept for, <laughs> for such occurrences. I, I pulled it out and I wrote it down really quickly. Um, and, when I, and when I got back to my place, uh, I typed it into my computer and I just made a file. You know, I said, this, this is something that I will return to. I was in the middle of a bunch of other projects at the time, including a novel uh, that became uh, Only the Strong, which was my, my most recent work of fiction before this one. And uh, I was deep into that and I didn't want to put it aside. Uh, so, you know, I just made a note, 2008. And then uh, several years later, when I was done with Only the Strong and I was ready to turn my attention to fiction again, uh, I said, let, let me pull that out and see, see where that's supposed to go. Let me, let me follow that line of thinking. Um, and that's when I began to develop the book. And was it like, did the story um, take different shapes across the years? Did you sometimes think about it? Or was it more like I just put it aside and then when I have time, I'll really start developing it? Uh, no, that's a, that's a very good question. And actually, I did think about it from time to time. I would sort of open up the file. and uh, If a line came to me or an idea came to me, I would write it down. Um, and then much later, I mean, originally, uh, those first lines, it was just a, a simple Uh, first person story told by a single character. And mm -hmm. over the course of time, it became a multiple uh, narrator novel, which made it much, much, much trickier. Um, but ultimately, I determined that was the best way to tell the story because there were certain things that I wanted to happen that couldn't happen to the character who had been telling the story. So of I course. said, well, I have to have, I have, to have other characters uh, have these experiences and talk about them. Yeah, because it's very interesting that you see 
because um, reality is a bit what each person uh, experiences, right? I mean, reality is factual, but in some ways there are very ways to see the same thing. And I think it's very interesting to see um, it's like every other chapter or something like there are these characters and you get to see their perspectives and what happened through their perspectives. Yeah, because I mean, you and I, we could watch the same same event or we could even experience the same event. And then someone would say, Karina, what happened? And you would yeah. tell your version of the story. And then someone would say, well, Jabari, what happened? And I would tell my version. And they might say, well, we just talked to Karina and what she said sounds nothing like what yeah. you said. <laughs> And it, it doesn't mean that either one of us is, is trying to mislead our listener, right? It's just yeah, we've, of course. We've, we've, we've perceived the same thing differently. Yeah, in the theme of the book, because we are talking yes. about enslaved people and the times that it was, uh, especially then, I'm yes. pretty certain. I also would like to talk about the title, Yonder, because it's, it's mm. a word that I noticed it comes up very often in the book. D did the title come after you started writing the story and then you decided to put the word or how, how, did, I, how did the title come to you? Um, the, the word was appearing before it became the title. And so in the course of thinking about possible titles, you know, I, I, at, at different points, uh, the manuscript had, had different titles uh, before I showed it to anyone. Uh, but yeah, I kept coming back to, to Yonder. And part of that idea is, or, or what I wanted to communicate was these people live in a very confined area and their knowledge of the world beyond this county, beyond this, this uh, plantation where they live is very limited, right? So there's a lot of talk about what might be out Yonder, you know, what, what, what's there. Uh, so I, I kind of uh, wanted the characters to speculate that about that a lot, because that's part of the fear of, of taking a chance of, of leaving confinement. Let's say you step off the edge of that plantation. Where do you go? Where, yeah. where's, the edge of, where, where's the edge of the world? We don't, we don't really know. Yeah. Uh, and so I wanted, I wanted that mystery to be part of it. And at the same time, uh, yonder plays a part in African-American spirituality as, as a word for the hereafter, the life after this one. Oh, that's uh, very interesting. I had no idea. Yeah, uh, there, there, there's more than one African-American uh, spiritual, which uses the phrase going up yonder. So going up yonder can mean dying and going to heaven. Or in the case of enslavement, it can mean we're leaving and going north. Right. So it has this, has this double meaning. I also feel like it's very pretty words. Uh, yes. You know, like, <laughs> yes. you know, I find it a very pretty word. I don't know how, how native speakers see it, but uh, <laughs> for me, it sounds very nice. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I felt the same way. I, I, wanted, I wanted a title that felt good coming off the tongue, you know. There are also instances of magical realism in the book. So it's not just, the, you know, what could have been or maybe stories that happened at the time, but you add the magical realism to it. Why that particular decision? Well, you know, I, I want to push back a, a little bit at the notion that it's magical realism. I mean, I, I appreciate the descriptions, but again, in African-American culture, uh, there is this belief that there is a permeable barrier between the spiritual world and the material world, right? And so uh, depending on who you're talking to, but there are many yeah. people who, be who believe that. And uh, I kind of wanted to acknowledge that in the, in the course of, of, the, of the, the story as it unfolds that, that you know, things happen. Yeah. Uh, and, we, and, <laughs> and, and we might attribute that to magic. We might attribute that to, well, it happened because it happened, right? Yeah. Uh, and so I, you know, I kind of wanted to, to always acknowledge that. And at the same time, I mean, a lot of what we're calling magical realism in the, in the novel is the intervention of, of ancestors, 
And ancestors uh, play a part in my previous book, Only the Strong, and my previous work of fiction before that, even A Taste of Honey, because I'm personally fascinated with ancestors, right? So, and I believe that my ancestors intervene on, on my behalf, and I believe that, that I, I live and succeed as a, as a result of their struggles, right? So I kind of wanted to infuse that philosophy into the story I was telling as well. You know, there, there's this phrase uh, when talking about one's ancestors, uh, because of them, I am. And so I wanted very much to sort of incorporate that philosophy into, uh, into Yonder. These, these characters exist because their ancestors lived and struggled on their behalf with this idea that in the future, uh, in this very specific future, that one day black people would be free, yeah. right? And so is also I, I, is it also that idea that I, I was I was born in a, a small town, and uh, I think also with religion it came that a bit that uh, you kind of believe on this garden angel and people will look out for you, and I think it's also a way to deal with grief sometimes. Um, yes. And in the book, there's also like there's these figures, and it's kind of protective of the people, and like you said, the ancestors. Yes. Yeah, uh, the, the, you know, that there, there are people looking out for you, you know, yeah. uh, in, in the best circumstances. And sometimes you're, you, you, you might even realize that they are this angelic or magical presence. And other times you might not. You might not have any idea. It could just be a kind stranger who did something, you know, nice and compassionate for you. And then later you, you could say you could describe that person. And like I said, Karina, I was on this this street corner. And this is what happened. And I stepped off the curb and this man pulled me back. He pulled me out of traffic. And you could say, well, I was right there and I, I never saw a man. <laughs> I never saw anybody yeah. pull you back from traffic. Right. Yeah, so, no, for sure. Yeah. For sure. I, I grew up with a lot of stories like that. Things that are strange that you can't. Maybe there is um, like an explanation, like a more. Yes earthly explanation but there are right. things that you just like I don't understand how that happened <laughs> yep yep exactly so I, I, I kind of wanted that to, to play a part in, in how the events unfolded in the book when did you figure out that you were going to become a writer because you just said you were first a journalist and then you became a teacher um, I would like to actually talk first about that step how did you go from being a journalist and then become a teacher uh, okay, sure. Um, so I was an editor at various newspapers, uh, most notably um, the uh, the Washington Post for, for many years. And while I was there, I started writing books. And so I would be invited to college campuses to give talks about my mm -hmm. books. And you know, every once in a while at one of the colleges, someone there would say, oh, you really should come teach here. You, you'd be great. This, you should think about this. And I always said, you know, that's a good idea. Um, I will think about this. <laughs> And as time progressed, I got more and more interested in it. And um, I visited University of Illinois and I gave a talk there based on one of my books. And the chancellor of the university was in the audience. And so he came up to me afterwards and said, man, you, what do you think about teaching here? And I said, well, talk to me. And so, <laughs> uh, and so that's, how I, that's how I ended up um, you know, teaching at the college level. What are you teaching there? Because you're still teaching, I, right? From what yes, I understand. Yes, yeah, I, I teach uh, creative writing and literature. So sometimes um, seminars on, say, you know, short stories or essays. Uh, I teach fiction and nonfiction, uh, the writing of. Uh, and I teach uh, mostly graduate students. I direct the graduate program here. But I do teach uh, undergraduates from time to time. Um, the program uh, that we talked about earlier uh, in the Netherlands uh, was mostly undergraduates. Yeah, we're gonna get to there in a bit. Okay. Uh, <laughs> then, then, so you basically um, 
you became a writer while you were still a journalist. Um, when you, did you figure out that you wanted to become a writer? Was it like a conscious decision or something that just happened organically throughout your job? No, I actually made a decision in college. Uh, I was about uh, 20 years old, I think, and I was a political science major. Uh, and it was a good major and, and I enjoyed it and I did well in it. Uh, but I realized that I was, I was spending the bulk of my study time on uh, literature electives that I had been taking, um, not because they were more difficult, but because they were more fascinating. And, it, you know, and, I, and I, I just kind of took a step back and said, you know, what's the reason behind this? Why am I spending so much time with courses that really aren't a part of my major? I don't need to do this. <laughs> uh, you know, and, uh, and it was because I just really liked it. So I changed my major pretty late in the game, um, became an English major. And at the same time, you know, that I made that decision, I made the decision to become a writer. And I was fortunate that um, I had some good professors who were really kind mentors who gave me serious advice, like, okay, if you're going to do this, this is what you need to do. And this is, you know, you need to practice most of all. <laughs> you need to read, you need to read, and you need to practice. So that was really valuable advice for me. Just keep writing. So you kind of keep the muscle going. <laughs> yes, yes. In, in your writing career, you have written several things, fiction, nonfiction for children, middle grade as well, poetry, plays. Do you have a favorite medium? Uh, it tends to be whichever one I'm working in at the moment. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> you know, it's like it's like uh, when I'm working on, say, a nonfiction book for adults, I'm like, I love this so much. Right? <laughs> how, how could I ever do anything else? And then I'll turn around and write a, a children. I'll be working on a children's project. And those are, you know, really wonderful to work on and I go man what if I just did this all the time just wrote children's books this would be really nice <laughs> then I then then I you know I work on another project and my loyalty shifts yeah well that's good actually <laughs> that you're actually not you're so on what you're doing instead the opposite would be more complicated it's like writing on fiction and feeling oh I really want to write fiction now so it's good yeah. that it works like that <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's like you know that there there will be another project beyond this one, right? And it, and it might take a different form, and that's absolutely fine. Do you have a favorite book? Because I, I I actually the question was a favorite story, but I'm putting everything into it, like fiction on fiction. A favorite book of my own? Yeah, like or, something uh, that you hold closer to your heart. Again, uh, it's similar to my answer to your previous question. It's not the project I'm working on, but it's the project I've just finished, usually. You know, so right it, now it's yonder. <laughs> yeah, right now. But, you know, uh, I have other things coming out. And so ask me again in a few months. <laughs> <laughs> Do you find it easy to combine your work as a professor with having a writing career? I don't know if I would say that it's easy, uh, but I would say that it's... Uh, it's nurturing and, and it's beneficial. I think that uh, the teaching helps me to be a better writer and the writing helps me to be a better teacher because I'm, I'm kind of always immersed in, in the question of how to best put together uh, a piece of writing. Because you have said writing is work, but it's joyful work. Yes. Do you agree yeah. that, uh, because it's a funny thing that I see in writing communities that most people who love writing also to some level, really dislike it because sometimes it can be so tough. Yeah, I, I wonder. I wonder about that. I think I think those same people uh, would fall into um, you know the the deepest uh, despair 
if you, if you, told, if you, if you said to them, yeah, writing's so hard, so we're going to relieve you of writing. You don't have to do that anymore. Uh, I think they would say, what? No, I, I was just whining. I was just complaining. Please, yeah. <laughs> please let me write. So I'm, I'm never going to complain about uh, writing. I'm, I'm, you know, it's like, it's a, it's a really privileged thing to do. And it's, and it's, it's really wonderful. So I'm, I'm never going to be that guy that says, oh my God, I have to write today. Oh, it's terrible. Because I do, I do say that, and I'm I'm speaking for myself some as well. Like I'm not a writer, but I do enjoy writing, and um, I do writing gigs um, often, and I do feel that sometimes that it's like, oh, this is so tough, and you don't usually hear people who, with other jobs at least loving it so much and sometimes hating it so much, and that's why I also thought it was um, that your quote was quite curious because yeah, writing is work, but it is joyful work, but it. For sure. still work of course yes yes I, part of that you know I, I think that phrase comes from me really talking to my students when they're like oh this is so hard you know and I'm like um yeah I, I get that but it's not working in a coal mine it really isn't you know yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean I'm, I'm sitting in this nice comfortable chair in front of this nice expensive computer you know it's not there there's labor and there's yeah labor. no for sure for <laughs> sure <laughs> And um, you told me before that uh, you've been in Rotterdam. Do you like the yes, city? I did. Yes. I, I spent uh, a wonderful day there with um, an American colleague and a Dutch colleague. And uh, I remember we sat out on a plaza and, and we ate and we drank and we just talked about all kinds of stuff and watched the people go by. It was pretty wonderful. And uh, th that was because there's this project that you have, um, you, um, the James Baldwin Writer's Colony. Uh, Talk to me about it. I would like to know what it is. Sure. Um, I, I teach here in Boston at Emerson College. And Emerson, as it happens, has a campus in the Netherlands uh, in the small uh, community of, of Well. And so um, I, I taught for consecutive summers there. I taught students from Emerson, but from many other colleges. So it was sort of an international program. And uh, part of it was you know, involved spending time in Amsterdam and Nijmegen and Rotterdam and, uh, and, and Paris. We also went to Paris for, I, I think, a week. Um, and um, yeah, so I got to spend time in, in the Netherlands and in Europe. And we, um, we looked for connections between uh, European literary traditions and African-American literary traditions. And uh, we worked on our writing and, and we went to cool places. So the, the reason why the um, Writer's Colony is here is because of the connection between the, the two schools in the US yes. and in the Netherlands. Yes, absolutely. And now it's not happening because of the pandemic. Right. They're still, they're still Emerson's Netherlands campus is, um, is still open. Okay. Uh, but, this, but, but the summer programs, uh, the past two summers, we decided it was too risky to you know yeah of course condition, travel conditions and... yeah conditions just weren't weren't right of course and um are you going to do anything for when when the book is out like tomorrow do you have any i don't know online stuff going on to celebrate the release of the book uh i'm doing a number of uh virtual uh visits to different cities uh but i'm starting tomorrow here in boston uh mm -hmm. the harvard bookstore uh i'm doing a virtual event but yeah i'm going to other other place going i put going in quotes <laughs> yes i'll be sitting right here but i'll be appearing in various cities um seattle st louis chicago atlanta uh, washington dc places like that 
so an online, so I'm looking forward to that. An online book tour. Yes, yes. And what are you working on at the moment? I have um, a uh, children's picture book coming out in September uh, about a little boy's encounter with the boxing champion, Muhammad Ali. It's oh, called nice. Me and Muhammad Ali. And uh, in December, I have a nonfiction book for middle schoolers called uh, A Child's Introduction to Jazz. Uh, wow. Come out in December. And so two books in the same year. Three. <laughs> three. Okay, there's yeah, one yeah, more. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and I'm also working on a collection of essays for Simon & Schuster okay. uh, called American Struggle. Won't be finished this year, but I'm working on it. As well. Um, yeah. I would like to know, where can people find you online? Uh, let's see. My Twitter handle is um, at uh, Jabari Asim, and my Instagram handle is the same. And on Facebook, it's Jabari Asim Writer. And the, the tour, the book tour, will it be available somewhere um, on your website, maybe, so people can join in? Uh, yeah, my, my website is, is, is presently being updated. So probably, uh, actually, if you just Google me and, and put Yonder in there, everything should come up. Great. Now, this is the last question of the podcast. And I would like to ask, because it's most people say it's the hardest one. And I would like an all-time favorite book and a book you would recommend right now. Sure. All-time favorite book. Uh, it changes, but um, today I will say uh, The Souls of Black Folk by W.E.B. Du Bois, which is a book I turn to a lot and marvel at its, its depths and layers and complexities. Uh, just extraordinary uh, genius there. And a contemporary book, I just read a collection of uh, short stories uh, by uh, Rian Amilcar Scott who is an American writer who teaches at the University of Maryland. Um, and he has a collection of stories called uh, Insurrections, uh, which take place in a fictional community near Washington, DC called uh, Cross River. And uh, I, I, I think a lot of it. Very well. Well, that was yeah. easy. A lot of people try to kind of, <laughs> can I say more than one? <laughs> yeah, it's like I say, if you ask me tomorrow, I'll probably give you completely different answers. <laughs> Very well. Um, Thank you so much for coming to A Story of Sorts. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. You can access today's show's notes via my pod page, which you can find along with all of my social media links at linktree slash Karina Pereira. If you have enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting A Story of Sorts on Patreon. Patreon is a platform which allows you to contribute monthly to the podcast in exchange for extra content, such as early access to episodes, a shout-out at the end of an episode and on Instagram, and choosing a theme for me to talk about on the podcast. You can become a patron at patreon.com slash a story of sorts. Leaving a review would also be highly appreciated. Don't forget to subscribe to get a notification when the next episode hits. I'll talk to you then, and thank you for listening.